Humbly, I join the Book of Mormon prophet Jacob, who asked, Why not speak of the Atonement of Christ? This topic comprises our third article of faith. We believe that through the Atonement of Christ, all mankind may be saved by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. Before we can comprehend the Atonement of Christ, however, we must first understand the fall of Adam. And before we can understand the fall of Adam, we must first understand the creation. These three crucial components of the plan of salvation relate to each other. The creation culminated with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They were created in the image of God with bodies of flesh and bone. Created in the image of God and not yet mortal, they could not grow old and die, and they would have had no children or experienced the trials of life. <laughs> Please forgive me for mentioning children and the trials of life in the same breath. The creation of Adam and Eve was a paradisiacal creation, one that required a significant change before they could fulfill the commandment to have children and thus provide earthly bodies for premortal spirit sons and daughters of God. That brings us to the fall. Scripture teaches that Adam fell that men might be, and men are that they might have joy. The fall of Adam and Eve constituted the mortal creation and brought about the required changes in their bodies, including the circulation of blood and other modifications as well. They were now able to have children. They and their posterity also became subject to injury, disease, and death. And the loving Creator blessed them with healing power by which the life and function of precious physical bodies could be preserved. For example, bones, if broken, could become solid again. Lacerations of the flesh could heal themselves. And miraculously, leaks in the circulation could be sealed off by components activated from the very blood being lost. Think of the wonder of that power to heal. If you could create anything that could repair itself, you would have created life in perpetuity. For example, if you could create a chair that could fix its own broken leg, there would be no limit to the life of that chair. Yet many of you walk on legs that were once broken and do so because of your remarkable gift of healing. Even though our Creator endowed us with this incredible power, he consigned a counterbalancing gift to our bodies. It is the blessing of aging, with visible reminders that we are mortal beings destined one day to leave this frail existence. Our bodies change every day. As we grow older, our broad chests and narrow waists have a tendency to trade places. <laughs> we get wrinkles lose color in our hair, even the hair itself, to remind us that we are mortal children of God with a manufacturer's guarantee that we shall not be stranded upon the earth forever. Were it not for the fall, 
our physicians, beauticians, and morticians would all be unemployed. <laughs> Adam and Eve as mortal beings were instructed to worship the Lord their God and offer the firstlings of their flocks for an offering unto the Lord. They were further instructed that the life of the flesh is in the blood, for it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. Probation, procreation, and aging were all components of, and physical death was essential to God's great plan of happiness. But mortal life, glorious as it is, was never the ultimate objective of God's plan. Life and death here on planet Earth were merely means to an end, not the end for which we were sent. That brings us to the Atonement. Paul said, As in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. The Atonement of Jesus Christ became the immortal creation. He volunteered to answer the ends of a law previously transgressed. And by the shedding of His blood, His and our physical bodies could become perfected. They could again function without blood, just as Adam and Eve did in their paradisiacal form. Paul taught that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This mortal must put on immortality. With this background in mind, let us now ponder the deep meaning of the word atonement. In the English language, components are at one meant, suggesting that a person is at one with another. Other languages employ words that connote either expiation or reconciliation. Expiation means to atone for. Reconciliation comes from Latin roots, re meaning again, con meaning with, and cella meaning seat. Reconciliation therefore literally means to sit again with. Rich meaning is found in study of the word atonement in Semitic languages of Old Testament times. In Hebrew, the basic word for atonement is kafar, a verb that means to cover or to forgive. Closely related is the Aramaic and Arabic word kafat, meaning a close embrace, no doubt related to the Egyptian ritual embrace. References to that embrace are evident in the Book of Mormon. One states that the Lord hath redeemed my soul, I have beheld His glory, and I am encircled about eternally in the arms of His love. Another proffers the glorious hope of our being clasped in the arms of Jesus. I weep for joy when I contemplate the significance of it all. To be redeemed is to be atoned, received in the close embrace of God, with an expression not only of His forgiveness, but of our oneness of heart and mind. What a privilege and what a comfort to those of us with loved ones who have already passed from our family circle through the gateway we call death. Scriptures teach us more about the word atonement. The Old Testament has many references to atonement, which called for animal sacrifice. Not any animal would do. Special considerations included the selection of a firstling of the flock without blemish, the sacrifice of the animal's life by the shedding of its blood, death of the animal without breaking a bone, 
and one animal could be sacrificed as a vicarious act for another. The Atonement of Christ fulfilled these prototypes of the Old Testament. He was the firstborn Lamb of God without blemish. His sacrifice occurred by the shedding of blood. No bones of his body were broken, noteworthy in that both malefactors crucified with the Lord had their legs broken, and his was a vicarious sacrifice for others. While the words atone or atonement in any of their forms appear only once in the King James translation of the New Testament, they appear 35 times in the Book of Mormon. As another testament of Jesus Christ, it sheds precious light on His atonement, as do the Doctrine and Covenants in the Pearl of Great Price. Latter-day Revelation has added much to our biblical base of understanding. In preparatory times of the Old Testament, the practice of atonement was finite, meaning it had an end. It was a symbolic forecast of the definitive atonement of Jesus the Christ. His Atonement is infinite, without an end. It was also infinite in that all humankind would be saved from never-ending death. It was infinite in terms of His immense suffering. It was infinite in time, putting an end to the preceding prototype of animal sacrifice. It was infinite in scope. It was to be done once for all. And the mercy of the Atonement extends not only to an infinite number of people, but also to an infinite number of worlds created by Him. It was infinite beyond any human scale of measurement or mortal comprehension. Jesus was the only one who could offer such an infinite Atonement, since He was born of a mortal mother and an immortal father. Because of that unique birthright, Jesus was an infinite being. The ordeal of the Atonement centered about the city of Jerusalem. There the greatest single act of love of all recorded history took place. Leaving the upper room, Jesus and His friends crossed the deep ravine east of the city and came to a garden of olive trees on the lower slopes of the Mount of Olives. There in the garden bearing the Hebrew name of Gethsemane, meaning oil press. Olives had been beaten and pressed to provide oil and food. There at Gethsemane the Lord suffered the pain of all men, that all might repent and come unto Him. He took upon Himself the weight of the sins of all mankind, bearing its massive load that caused Him to bleed from every pore. Later he was beaten and scourged. A crown of sharp thorns was thrust upon his head as an additional form of torture. He was mocked and jeered. He suffered every indignity at the hands of his own people. I came unto my own, he said, and my own received me not. Instead of their warm embrace, he received their cruel rejection. Then he was required to carry his own cross to the hill of Calvary, where he was nailed to that cross and made to suffer excruciating pain. Later he said, I thirst. To a doctor of medicine, this is a very meaningful expression. 
Doctors know that when a patient goes into shock because of blood loss, invariably that patient, if still conscious, with parched and shriveled lips, cries for water. Even though the father and the son knew well in advance what was to be experienced, the actuality of it brought indescribable agony. And Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. Jesus then complied with the will of his Father. Three days later, precisely as prophesied, he rose from the grave. He became the first fruits of the resurrection. He had accomplished the atonement which could give immortality and eternal life to all obedient human beings. All that the fall allowed to go awry, the atonement allowed to go aright. The Savior's gift of immortality comes to all who have ever lived, but His gift of eternal life requires repentance and obedience to specific ordinances and covenants. Essential ordinances of the gospel symbolize the atonement. Baptism by immersion is symbolic of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Redeemer. Partaking of the sacrament renews baptism covenants and also renews our memory of the Savior's broken flesh and of the blood He shed for us. Ordinances of the temple symbolize our reconciliation with the Lord and seal families together forever. Obedience to the sacred covenants made in temples qualifies us for eternal life, the greatest gift of God to man, the object and end of our existence. The creation required the fall. The fall required the atonement. The atonement enabled the purpose of the creation to be accomplished. Eternal life made possible by the creation, by the atonement, is the supreme purpose of the creation. To phrase that statement in its negative form, if families were not sealed in holy temples, the whole earth would be utterly wasted. The purposes of the creation, the fall, and the atonement all converge on the sacred work done in temples of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The earth was created and the Church was restored to make possible the sealing of wife to husband, children to parents, families to progenitors, worlds without end. This is the great Latter-day work of which we are a part. That's why we have missionaries. That's why we have temples to bring the fullest blessings of the Atonement to faithful children of God. That is why we respond to our own calls from the Lord when we comprehend His voluntary Atonement. Any sense of sacrifice on our part becomes completely overshadowed by a profound sense of gratitude for the privilege of serving Him. As one of the special witnesses of the name of Christ in all the world, I testify that He is the Son of the living God. Jesus is the Christ, our atoning Savior and Redeemer. This is His Church, restored to bless God's children and to prepare the world for the second coming of the Lord. I so testify in this sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
President Faust, I wish you would tell the clocks in the tabernacle to be honest. <laughs> They've changed two hours and 40 minutes during the last song. I can't believe it. Take a look, brethren. <laughs> Five to eleven. Brethren, as I contemplate this vast audience assembled at this general priesthood meeting of the Church, I seek the help of our Heavenly Father. I approach my responsibility to speak to you with the deepest humility. Of late, I have been studying the teachings of the early apostles, including their calls, their ministries, and their very lives. It is a fascinating experience and truly brings one closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. Tonight, may I share with you a profound plea given by the Apostle Paul to his beloved missionary companion, Timothy. Paul's words are applicable to each of us. He said, Be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Neglect not the gift that is in thee. Meditate upon these things. Brethren, ours is the opportunity to learn, the privilege to obey, and the duty to serve. In our time, there are feet to steady, hands to grasp, minds to encourage, hearts to inspire, and souls to save. For example, consider the law of tithing. The honest payment of tithing provides a person the inner strength and commitment to comply with the other commandments. President Gordon B. Hinckley has declared, there has been laid upon the Church a tremendous responsibility. Tithing is the source of income for the Church to carry forward its mandated activities. The need is always greater than the availability. God help us to be faithful in observing this great principle which comes from Him with His marvelous promise. Close quote. From Malachi we read, Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, Wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. All of us can afford to pay tithing. In reality, none of us can afford not to pay tithing. The Lord will strengthen our resolve. He will open a way to comply. May I share with you a letter I received some months ago which provides such an example. The letter begins, and I quote, We live on the edge of a small town, and our neighbor uses our pasture for his cattle and his payment provides us with all the beef we want. Each time we get new beef, we have some of the present supply left over. And since we live in a student ward, we take meat to some students we feel might have good use for the beef. 
During the time my wife was serving in a Relief Society presidency, her secretary was a student's wife, the mother of eight children. Her husband, Jack, had recently been called as ward clerk. My wife had always prayed to know which students might need our help with our excess meat. When she told me she felt we should give some meat to Jack and his family, I was very concerned that we might offend them. So was she. We both were worried because they were a very independent family. A few days later, my wife said she still felt we should take the meat to them, and I reluctantly agreed to go along. When we delivered the meat, my wife's hands were actually shaking, and I was very nervous. The children opened the door, and when they heard why we were there, they began dancing around. The parents were reserved but pleasant. When we drove away, my wife and I both were so relieved and happy that they had accepted our gift. A few months later, our friend Jack got up in testimony meeting and related the following. He said that all his life he had had a hard time paying tithing. With such a large family, they used all the money he earned just to get by. When he became ward clerk, he saw all the other people paying tithing and felt he needed to also. He did so for a couple of months, and all was well. Then one month he had a problem. In his job, he completed work and was paid a few months later. He could see that the family was going to be far short of money. He and his wife decided to share the problem with their children. If they paid their tithing, they would run out of food on the 20th of the month. If they didn't pay their tithing, they could buy enough food to last until the next paycheck. Jack said he wanted to buy the food. But the children, they said they wanted to pay tithing. So Jack paid the tithing, and they prayed. A few days after paying their tithing, we had shown up with our package of meat for them. With the meat added to what they had, there was no problem having enough food until the next paycheck. There are so many lessons here for me, said the writer. For instance, always listen to my wife. <laughs> but for me, the most important is that the prayers of people are almost always answered by the actions of others. I recognize that there are thousands of missionaries attending this priesthood meeting tonight. I wish to share a word or two especially with you. During the time I served as a mission president and then in thousands of missionary interviews as a member of the Twelve, I said to the missionaries whom I interviewed, When you return home, I ask that you make three commitments. Eagerly, without knowing what the commitments were, they would nod their approval, just like missionaries. I then shared with them this counsel. One, prepare well for your vocation profession, or trade, and be the very best you can be at what you choose to do. Two, quoting Elder Bruce R. McConkie, marry the right person at the right time, in the right place, and by the right authority. Thus far, their responses were spontaneous and enthusiastic. Then I would counsel number three, always be active in the Church. Some of the missionaries would look a little quizzical before responding, 
And I would say, let me put the matter another way. Three words provide the formula. Pay your tithing. Each would affirm determination to do so. I truly believe that the payment of an honest tithing will go a long way to assure continued activity in the Church. I could say much more concerning tithing, but tonight I would also wish to address the other part of Malachi's message, namely offerings. The concept of fast offerings appears as early as the time of Isaiah when speaking of the true fast. He encouraged people to fast and to deal thy bread to the hungry and bring the poor that are cast out to thy house. The prophet Joseph instituted the practice of collecting fast offerings for the poor in Kirtland, Ohio. And later at Nauvoo, the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles sent a general letter to the Church defining the principles of fasts, stating, Let this be an example to all saints, and there will never be any lack for bread. When the poor are starving, let those who have fast one day and give what they otherwise would have eaten to the bishops for the poor, and everyone will abound for a long time. And this is one great and important principle of fasts approved of the Lord. And so long as the saints will all live to this principle with glad hearts and cheerful countenances, they will always have an abundance. The prophets of our day and time have been equally specific. Elder Harold B. Lee counseled, When you think about it, there is so much promised in the gospel for so little required on our part. For example, the ordinance of baptism is given us for the remission of sins, for entrance into the kingdom, a new birth. The gift of the Holy Ghost gives us the right to companionship with one of the Godhead. Administration to the sick qualifies the individual with faith for a special blessing. By paying our tithing, the windows of heaven may be opened unto us. By fasting and by paying our fast offerings, we are told that then we might call on the Lord and He will hear our cry and our call. President Lee's successor in the presidency of the Church, President Spencer W. Kimball, said, We wish to remind all the saints of the blessings that come from observing the regular fast and contributing as generous a fast offering as we can and as we are in a position to give. Wherever we can, we should give many times the value of the meals from which we abstained. President Kimball added, Collecting fast offerings is an important duty. I thought it was a great honor to be a deacon. My father was always considerate and permitted me to take the buggy and the horse to gather fast offerings. My responsibility included that part of the town in which I lived, but it's quite a long walk to the homes, and a sack of flour or a bottle of fruit or vegetables or bread became quite heavy as it accumulated, so the buggy was very comfortable and functional. We've changed to cash in later days, but it was commodities in my day. It was a very great honor to do this service for my Heavenly Father. And though times have changed, when money is given generally instead of commodities, it is still a great honor to perform this service. 
Young men, I imagine you deacons today also wouldn't mind taking a horse and buggy to gather fast offerings. You may never get back to priesthood meeting, however. I remember when I was a young deacon, I would cover a portion of the ward on fast Sunday morning, giving the small envelope to each family, waiting while a contribution was placed in it, and then returning it to the bishop. On one such occasion, an elderly member, Brother Wright, welcomed me at the door and with aged hands fumbled at the tie of the envelope and placed within it a quarter. His eyes fairly twinkled as he made his contribution. He told me of a time years before when the Relief Society president, Sister Balmforth, with food collected from those who had given, carried to his home in a small red wagon food for his cupboard and provided gratitude for his soul. He described her as an angel sent from heaven. I have never forgotten Eddie Wright. Deacons and others of the Aaronic priesthood who perform today this sacred service, please know it is a duty as well. I recall that as a bishop, one morning the boys in the ward over which I presided had assembled, sleepy-eyed, a bit disheveled, mildly complaining about arising so early to fulfill their assignment. Not a word of reproof was spoken, but during the following week, we escorted the boys to Welfare Square in Salt Lake City for a guided tour. They saw firsthand a lame sister operating the telephone switchboard, an older man stocking shelves, women arranging clothing to be distributed, even a blind person placing, in a straight fashion, labels on cans of food. Here were individuals earning their sustenance, through their contributed labors. A penetrating silence came over the boys as they witnessed how their effort each month helped to collect the sacred fast-offering funds which aided the needy and provided employment for those who otherwise would be idle. From that hallowed day forward, we no longer had to urge our deacons with regard to collecting fast-offerings on fast Sunday mornings, they were present at 7 a.m., dressed in their Sunday best, anxious to do their duty as holders of the Aaronic priesthood. No longer were they simply distributing and collecting envelopes. They were now helping to provide food for the hungry, shelter for the homeless, all after the way of the Lord. Their smiles were more frequent, their pace more eager, their very souls more subdued. Perhaps now they were marching to the beat of a different drummer. Perhaps now they better understood the classic passage, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. In the vicinity where I lived and served, we operated a poultry project. Most of the time it was an efficiently operated welfare project, supplying to the storehouse, thousands of dozens of fresh eggs, and hundreds of pounds of dressed poultry. On a few occasions, however, the experience of being volunteer city farmers provided not only blisters on the hands, but frustration of heart and mind. For example, I shall ever remember the time we gathered together the teenage neuronic priesthood young men 
to really give that poultry project a spring cleaning. Our enthusiastic and energetic throng gathered at the project and in a speedy fashion uprooted, gathered, and burned large quantities of weeds and debris. By the light of the glowing bonfires, we ate hot dogs and congratulated ourselves on a job well done. The project was now neat and tidy. However, there was just one disastrous problem. The noise and the fires had so disturbed the fragile and temperamental population of several thousand laying hens that most of them went into a sudden molt and ceased laying. Thereafter, we tolerated a few weeds that we might produce more eggs. No member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who has canned peas, top beets, hauled hay, or shoveled coal in such a cause ever forgets or regrets the experience of helping provide for those in need. Devoted men and women helped to operate this vast and inspired welfare program. In reality, the plan would never succeed on effort alone, for this program operates through faith after the way of the Lord. Brethren, you and your families are to be commended for the manner in which you also contributed generously to the humanitarian efforts of the Church throughout the world. We provide essential help to the needy in times of natural disasters, starvation, sickness, and events that can strike anywhere—emergency food supplies, clothing, shelter, and medical equipment bring succor to the suffering and peace to the recipient and to the giver, even the peace promised of the Lord. Projects provided by your generosity bring health and happiness through the drilling of wells to provide uncontaminated water to those who have never had such. Children walk who once would have been crippled by polio thanks to your contributions, which provided the vaccine to prevent such dreaded tragedies. And should you be in Salt Lake City, will you pay a visit to the Sort Center where millions of pounds of contributed clothing are received, sorted, packed, and shipped to the needy throughout the world, as well as to pockets of poverty situated closer to home? One is reminded of the statement made by the Prophet Joseph. A man filled with the love of God is not content with blessing his family alone, but ranges throughout the whole world, anxious to bless the whole human race. Most of you are home teachers. You are the eyes and ears of the bishops in seeking out the poor and the afflicted. While doing their duty, vigilant home teachers have observed unemployed fathers anxious to obtain work, distraught mothers seeing their tiny broods suffer, children crying from hunger, inadequately clothed to protect them from the cold of winter. In one instance, all of the family members were sleeping on the floor because they had no beds. Without delay, needed help was provided, and ever will it be. Remember the counsel from King Benjamin described in Mosiah, Ye yourselves will succor those that stand in need of your succor. Ye will administer of your substance unto him that standeth in need, 
and ye will not suffer that the beggar putteth up his petition to you in vain and turn him out to perish. Fortunately and commendably, the Church is doing more than it has ever done to relieve suffering, to satisfy hunger, to prevent and cure illness, and to bless those in need. There is more to do. Tonight, brethren, my prayer is that we may be examples Examples of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Then shall we be the recipients of the Lord's promise. I, the Lord, am merciful and gracious unto those who fear me and delight to honor those who serve me in righteousness and in truth unto the end. Great shall be their reward, and eternal shall be their glory. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. My dear brethren, we are all privileged that so many of us in so many countries can be together in this great meeting of the priesthood of the Church. All of us are grateful our beloved prophet and leader, President Gordon B. Hinckley, is present. We all rejoice that President Hinckley has been able to meet with so many saints in so many lands since he was called as president of the Church, and he has blessed them greatly. We are grateful for his inspired leadership. I am humbled beyond the power of expression to serve with President Hinckley, President Monson, members of the Quorum of the Twelve, and the other general authorities of the Church. I have a most profound respect and appreciation for each of them. Brethren, we should all be concerned about the society in which we live, a society which is like a moral Armageddon. I am concerned about its effect upon us as the holders of the priesthood of God. There are so many in the world who do not seem to know or care about right or wrong. The thirteenth article of faith is known to all of us. I repeat it for emphasis. We believe in being honest, true, chaste, benevolent, virtuous, and in doing good to all men. Indeed, we may say that we follow the admonition of Paul. We believe all things. We hope all things. We have endured many things and hope to be able to endure all things. If there is anything virtuous, lovely, or of good report, or praiseworthy, we seek after these things. We all need to know what it means to be honest. Honesty is more than not lying. It is truth-telling, truth-speaking, truth-living, and truth-loving. John, a nine-year-old Swiss pioneer child who was in one of the handcart companies, is an example of honesty. His father put a chunk of buffalo meat in the handcart and said it was to be saved for Sunday dinner. John said, I was so very hungry and the meat smelled so good to me while pushing at the cart that I could not resist. I had a little pocket knife. 
Although I expected a severe whipping when Father found it out, I cut off little pieces each day. I would chew them so long that they got white and perfectly tasteless. When Father came to get the meat, he asked me if I'd been cutting off some of it. I said yes. I was so hungry I could not let it alone. Instead of giving me a scolding or a whipping, Father turned away and wiped tears from his eyes. I wish to speak to you frankly about being honest. Honesty is a moral compass to guide us in our lives. You young men are under great pressure to learn the technology that is expanding and will continue to expand so rapidly. However, the tremendous push to excel in secular learning sometimes tempts us to compromise that which is more important, their integrity and honesty. Cheating in school is a form of self-deception. We go to school to learn. We cheat ourselves when we coast on the efforts and scholarship of someone else. A friend related this experience while her husband was attending medical school. <coughs> Excuse me. Getting into medical school is pretty competitive, and the desire to do well and be successful puts a great deal of pressure on new incoming freshmen. My husband had worked hard on his studies and went to attend his first examination. The honor system was expected behavior at the medical school. The professor passed out the examination and left the room. Within a short time, students started to pull little cheat papers out from under their papers or from their pockets. My husband recalled his heart beginning to pound as he realized it's pretty hard to compete against cheaters. About that time, a tall, lanky student stood up in the back of the room and stated, I left my hometown and put my wife and three little babies in an upstairs apartment and worked very hard to medical, get into medical school. And I'll turn in the first one of you who cheats. And you better believe it. They believed it. <laughs> there were many sheepish expressions, and those cheat papers started to disappear as fast as they appeared. He set a standard for the class, which eventually graduated the largest group in the school's history. The young, lanky medical student who challenged the cheaters was J. Ballard Washburn who became a respected physician and in later years received special recognition from the Utah Medical Association for his outstanding service as a medical doctor. He also served as a general authority and is now the president of the Las Vegas Temple. In reality, we are only in competition with ourselves. Others can challenge and motivate us but we must reach deep down into our souls and call forth our God-given intelligence and capabilities. We cannot do this when we depend on the efforts of someone else. Honesty is a principle, and we have our moral agency to determine how we will apply this principle. We have the agency to make choices. 
but ultimately we will be accountable for each choice we make. We may deceive others, but there is one we will never deceive. From the Book of Mormon we learn, The keeper of the gate is the Holy One of Israel, and he employeth no servant there. And there is none other way, save it be by the gate, for he cannot be deceived, for the Lord God is his name. In the fateful war year of 1942, I was inducted into the United States Army Air Corps. One cold night at Chanute Field, Illinois, I was given all-night guard duty. As I walked around my post, I meditated and pondered the whole miserable long night through. By morning, I had come to some firm conclusions. I was engaged to be married and knew that I could not support my wife on a private pay. In a day or two, I filed my application for officer's candidate school. Shortly thereafter, I was summoned before the Board of Inquiry. My qualifications were few, but I had had two years of college and had finished a mission for the Church in South America. The questions asked of me at the officer's Board of Inquiry took a very surprising turn. Nearly all of them centered upon my beliefs. Do you smoke? Do you drink? What do you think of others who smoke and drink? I had no trouble answering these questions. Do you pray? Do you believe that an officer should pray? The officer asking these questions was a hard-bitten career soldier. He did not look like he prayed very often. I pondered. Would I give him offense if I answered how I truly believed? I wanted to be an officer very much so that I would not have to do all-night guard duty and KP and clean latrines, but mostly so my sweetheart and I could afford to be married. I decided not to equivocate. I admitted that I did pray and that I felt that officers might seek divine guidance as some truly great generals had done. I told them that I thought that officers should be prepared to lead their men on all appropriate activities if the occasion requires including prayer. More interesting questions came. In times of war, should not the moral code be relaxed? Does not the stress of battle justify men in doing things that they would not do when at home under normal situations? I recognized that here was a chance perhaps to make some points and look broad-minded. I suspected that the men who were asking me this question did not live by the standards that I had been taught. The thought flashed through my mind that perhaps I could say that I had my own beliefs, but I did not wish to impose them on others. But there seemed to flash before my mind the faces of the many people to whom I had taught the law of chastity as a missionary. In the end, I simply said, I do not believe there is a double standard of morality. I left the hearing resigned to the fact that these hard-bitten officers would not like the answers I had given to their questions and would surely score me very low. 
A few days later, when the scores were posted, to my astonishment, I had passed. I was in the first group taken for officer's candidate school. I graduated, became a second lieutenant, married my sweetheart, and we have lived happily together ever after. This was one of the critical crossroads of my life. Not all of the experiences in my life turned out that way, or the way I wanted them to, but they've always been strengthening to my faith. Stealing is all too common throughout the world. For many, their reasoning seems to be, what can I get away with? Or, it's okay to do it as long as I don't get caught. Stealing takes many forms, including shoplifting, taking cars, stereos, CD players, video games, and other items that belong to someone else, stealing time, money, and merchandise from employers, stealing from the government by misuse of the taxpayer's money, or making false claims on our income tax returns, or borrowing without any intention of repayment. No one has ever gained anything of value by theft. In the play Othello, Shakespeare has Iago teach a great truth. Who steals my purse steals trash. Tis something, nothing. Twas mine, tis his, and has been a slave to thousands. But he that filches from me my good name robs me of that which not enriches him and makes him poor indeed. The stealing of anything is unworthy of a priesthood holder. Any moral dishonesty is inconsistent with the exercising the priesthood of God. In fact, the priesthood can only be exercised on the principle of righteousness. When exercised in any degree of unrighteousness, it is withdrawn. You just can't have it both ways. By being dishonest, people only cheat themselves. There are different shades of truth-telling. When we tell little white lies, we become progressively colorblind. It is better to remain silent than to mislead. The degree to which each of us tells the whole truth and nothing but the truth depends on our conscience. David Cass Stevens of the Dallas Morning News tells a story about Frank Szymanski, a Notre Dame center in the 1940s, who had been called as a witness in a civil suit at South Bend, Indiana. Are you on the Notre Dame football team this year? The judge asked. Yes, Your Honor. What position? Center, Your Honor. How good a center? Says Mansi squirmed in his seat, but said firmly, Sir, I'm the best center Notre Dame has ever had. Coach Frank Leahy, who was in the courtroom, was surprised. Szymanski had always been modest and unassuming. So when the proceedings were over, he took Szymanski aside and asked why he had made such a statement. Szymanski blushed. I hated to do it, Coach, he said. But after all, I was under oath. <laughs> this summer, the Olympic Games were held in Atlanta, Georgia.
Many of the athletes had trained most of their lives to compete. Mere hundreds of a second separated the gold, silver, or bronze medals, as well as the possibility of fortunes in commercial endorsements. Some athletes have been known to cheat by taking prohibited chemicals into their bodies in an effort to temporarily enhance their performance. Whether in sports or in the game of life, we need to achieve honestly under our own steam and not on false merit. I would like to tell you a story of an excellent athlete, a young man with superb character. He never went to the Olympics, but he stands as tall as any Olympian because he was honest with himself and with his God. The account is told by a coach in a junior high school. He states, Today was test day in climbing the rope. We climbed from a standing start to a point 15 feet high. My job is to train and teach the boys to negotiate this distance in as few seconds as possible. The school record for the event is 2.1 seconds. It has stood for three years. Today, this record was broken. For three years, Bobby Palacio, a 14-and-a-half-year-old ninth-grade boy, trained and worked, consumed by his dream to breaking this record. In the first Of three attempts, Bobby climbed the rope in 2.1 seconds, tying the record. On the second try, the watch stopped at 2.0 seconds flat, a record. But as he descended the rope and the entire class gathered around to check the watch, I knew I must ask Bobby a question. There was a slout doubt in my mind whether or not the board at the 15-foot height had been touched. If he missed, it was so very, very close, not more than a fraction of an inch, and only Bobby knew this answer. As he walked toward me expressionless, I said, Bobby, did you touch? If he said yes, the record he had dreamed of since he was a skinny seventh grader and had worked for almost daily would be his, and he knew that I would trust his word. With a class already cheering him for his performance, the slim, brown-skinned boy shook his head negatively, and in this simple gesture, I witnessed a moment of greatness. It was with effort, and through a tight throat, I told the class, this boy has not set a record in the rope climb. No, he has set a much finer record for you and for everyone to strive for. He has told the truth. I turned to Bobby and said, Bobby, I'm proud of you. You've just set a record many athletes never attain. Now, in your last try, I want you to jump a few inches higher on the takeoff. After the other boys had finished their next terms and Bobby came up for his try, A strange stillness came over the gymnasium. Fifty boys and one coach watched breathlessly as Bobby Palacio climbed the rope in 1.9 seconds. A school record, a city record, and perhaps close to a national record for a junior high school boy. When the bell rang, 
and I walked away, I was thinking, Bobby, at 14, you are a better man than I. Thank you for climbing so very, very high today. All of us can climb high when we honor every form of truth. As President Gordon B. Hinckley has said, let the truth be taught by example and precept that to steal is evil, that to cheat is wrong, that to lie is a reproach to anyone who indulges in it. Holding and exercising the priesthood of God is a marvelous blessing. We are privileged to be part of the unprecedented unrolling of this holy work. We are seeing the remarkable progress of this Church in lands we never dreamed of. Brethren, I am confident the Lord will continue to bless us as we remain honest, faithful, and true to ourselves and to this great cause. The progress of this work is a testimony of its truthfulness. Yet each of us can have our own witness through the gift of the Spirit. I have such a witness. That witness permeates the very depths of my soul. May the Lord bless us as we go forth in this holy cause. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. A few years ago, following general conference, our four-year-old grandson Andrew asked his mother, Mommy, is Jesus counting on me? His mother answered, Oh, yes, Andrew. Jesus is counting on you. He wants you to obey. Mom and Dad, do what is right, and especially to be kind to your little brother Benny. This four-year-old thought about that for a few moments and said, Mommy, tell him not to count on me. Fortunately, by the time Andrew receives the Aaronic Priesthood, he'll have come to know that Jesus is counting on him. Tonight, let's consider three important ways in which the Lord is counting on you who are privileged to bear the Aaronic Priesthood. First, the Savior is counting on you to be a champion of those who need you. In a high school not far from here, a young mentally handicapped student, we'll call Frank, wanted so much to be accepted by the popular crowd. He'd follow them around, always on the outside looking in hoping to be included, but never achieving it. One day in the cafeteria, some of the more popular boys and girls encouraged Frank to get up on the table and dance. Thinking he would please them, he did it. In his awkward way, he twisted and twirled. The group yelled, clapped their hands, and laughed. They were laughing at him, and Frank thought they were laughing with him. A few tables away, Dave was eating lunch with a friend and watching it all. He courageously leaped up faced that crowd of tormentors and through clenched teeth said, I've had as much of this as I can stand. He helped Frank down and said, Frank, you come and have lunch with us. The Savior is counting on you to be a champion of those who need you, and they're all around you, in your school, in your neighborhood, in your family. At a 20-year high school reunion, one of the graduates had a surprising conversation with one of her classmates that went something like this. I came to this reunion after all these years, hoping you'd be here so I could thank you. My high school experience was hard for me. You may not have known it, but you were the only friend I had in high school. I wondered if maybe the seminary teacher had assigned you to be nice to me. Did he? No, he didn't assign me. Well, you didn't know it, but every day I looked for you because I knew that you would talk to me. 
You made me feel better about myself. Now I'm married and have a large family. During these past years, I've thought many times of what you meant to me, and I wanted to tell you that." Close quote. There are those who wake up every morning dreading to go to school or even to a church activity because they worry about how they will be treated. You have the power to change their lives for the better. You are a bearer of the priesthood of God, and the Lord is counting on you to be a builder and to give them a lift. Think less about yourself and more about the power you have to assist others, even those within your own family. A 14-year-old sister was all dressed up to go to a young women activity at a time in her life when she felt very unsure about herself. She was quietly and self-consciously inching her way toward the front door, hoping not to be noticed by all the young men in the living room who were visiting with her older brother, Russell. She was given a life-changing boost when her older brother interrupted his conversation and said to her in front of all his friends, My Emily, you look pretty tonight. A small thing? No. There are young women who claim that they would, would not have made it through those growing up years without the encouragement and support of their older brothers. Last month in the area of Salt Lake City, a fellow Aaronic priesthood bearer, Zachary Snar, was brutally and senselessly murdered. Among the many wonderful things said about him by family and friends was that he rarely missed a day without telling his mother how much he loved her. His cheerful and loving nature around their home leaves them with priceless memories. Your mothers need you to be a champion of them. Never should a bearer of the Aaronic priesthood be guilty of saying anything discourteous or disrespectful to his mother. The scriptures teach us that whenever we are abusive, thoughtless, or unkind to others, the devil laugheth and his angels rejoice. Also, that the heavens withdraw themselves, the Spirit of the Lord is grieved, and when it is withdrawn, amen, or the end, to the priesthood or the authority of that man. Maybe you thought that doing these little kindnesses doesn't make much difference, but as Alma said, by small and simple things are great things brought to pass. We also read, Be not weary in well-doing, for you are laying the foundation of a great work. You are a great work in progress, and out of small things proceedeth that which is great. Next, the Savior is counting on you to avoid the immoral trash that surrounds you in the media. Satan has made great inroads into the lives of some Latter-day Saints through the evil in the media. I am confident that the great majority of you have not been guilty of serious sexual sin, but many are placing themselves in a path that could lead to it. A bishop reported that he had observed that the spiritual level of the young priesthood bearers in his ward was declining. Through his personal interviews with them, he discovered that many of them were watching R-rated movies. When he asked them where they went to see them and to see such trash, they said, We don't go anywhere. We watch them at home. We have cable television, and when our parents are gone, we watch anything we want to. Fathers, you may want to reconsider having unrestricted cable or unsupervised television sets in your home, and particularly in your children's bedrooms. It is very unreasonable to suppose that exposure to profanity, nudity, sex, and violence have no negative effects on us. We can't roll around in the mud without getting dirty. It is a concern that some of our young Latter-day Saints, as well as their parents, regularly watch R-rated and other inappropriate movies and videos. One more reason why the devil laugheth 
and his angels rejoice. Just a few months ago, as the Lord's prophet, President Gordon B. Hinckley shared with the youth and with all of us this clear and unmistakable counsel, quote, Be clean. I cannot emphasize that enough. Be clean. It is so very, very important, and you at your age are in such temptation all the time. It is thrown at you on television. It is thrown at you in books and magazines and videos. You do not have to rent them. Don't do it. Just don't do it. Don't look at them. If somebody proposes that you sit around all night watching some of that sleazy stuff, you say, it's not for me. Stay away from it. Close quote. The Lord and his living prophets are counting on you to avoid the trash that surrounds you in the media. When anyone chooses to ignore or defiantly go against the counsel of the living prophet, he is on very shaky ground. Remember that when Joseph was tempted by Potiphar's wife to be immoral with her, he fled and got himself out. Temptations are all around us, and today with the advent of the Internet, they are increasing. There is much that is positive in the world of the media, but there is so much that is negative. If we permit ourselves to become involved with the negative, there will be much more cause for the devil to laugh and his angels to rejoice. Finally. As the Savior is counting on you to be worthy to enter the temple and to fill an honorable mission. An acquaintance of mine grew up not far from here. By the time he was 14 years old, he was over six feet tall and very uncoordinated. He said, One afternoon when I was in a 10th grade seminary class, the Spirit really touched me. I came to know that the gospel literally was true. I made up my mind that day that I wanted to serve the Lord in any way I could. By his senior year, he was well over six feet tall and much more coordinated. Many universities offered him scholarships to play basketball. After his first year playing at a university, he told his coach that he would like to be excused for two years to go on a mission. The coach said, If you leave, you can be sure of one thing. You will never again wear one of our basketball uniforms. Many thought that his mission ought to be playing basketball. Even some family members, including his parents, tried to convince him not to serve a mission. But he was totally committed. He was willing to give everything to the Lord—the scholarship, the applause of the fans, and the excitement of playing. He knew what the Lord was counting on him to do. He was called, and he served an honorable mission. When he returned two years later, he was even taller and about 35 pounds heavier. His coach decided to repent. He, <clears throat> he was permitted to wear one of those basketball uniforms again, and in his senior year, his team not only won the conference championship, but went on to the finals in national competition. The Lord's commandment to his apostles was, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. Modern prophets have taught that every young man who is physically and mentally able should prepare himself to serve an honorable mission. The Lord did not say, Go on a mission if it fits your schedule, or if you happen to feel like it, or if it doesn't interfere with your scholarship, your romance, or your educational plans. Preaching the gospel is a commandment and not merely a suggestion. It is a blessing and a privilege and not a sacrifice. Remember, even though for some of you there may be very tempting reasons for you not to serve a full-time mission, the Lord and His prophets are counting on you. More than ever before in my life, I know that Jesus is the Christ. This is His Church, and it is led by living prophets. 
The Lord and his prophets are counting on you to, first, be a champion of those who need you, second, avoid the trash that surrounds you in the media, and third, be worthy to enter the temple and fill an honorable mission. I pray that the world will be a better place because you have lived in it. That is our task. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. I'm certain every young man, after listening to this beautiful, inspiring missionary choir, has committed at the appropriate age to follow you into the service of our Lord in the mission field. In the early history of the Church, it records that during the winter of 1833, the Lord directed that a school of the prophets was to be organized for their instruction in all things that are expedient for them. It was to be held on the second floor of the new K. Whitney store. The brethren would come to the school to be instructed by the prophet Joseph Smith. Some had acquired the habit of chewing and smoking tobacco. It became difficult for the prophet to teach spiritual things in a temporal environment filled with smoke. Joseph Smith was troubled with the physical surroundings and inquired of the Lord if such conditions were proper for the brethren. In answer to his petition, he received a revelation known to us as the Word of Wisdom. The Word of Wisdom contains some very positive aspects. It encourages us to use grains, particularly wheat, and to use fruits and vegetables, and the sparing use of meat. It is also noted for its prohibition, absolute prohibition against the use of alcohol, tobacco, tea, and coffee. Added to this has been the counsel of the Church leaders to abstain from the use of such drugs as marijuana, cocaine, etc., and the abusive use of prescription drugs. In a special promise that was given in this revelation, as contained in the 88th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, we receive this, these words, And all saints who remember to keep and do these sayings, walking in obedience to the commandments, shall receive health in their navel and marrow to their bones, and shall, shall find wisdom and great treasures of knowledge, even hidden treasures, and shall run and not be weary, and shall walk and not faint. And I, the Lord, give unto them a promise that the destroying angel shall pass by them as the children of Israel and not slay them. I will ever be grateful to the teachings of righteous parents who instilled in us the lessons taught to us in the Word of Wisdom. In addition to their teachings, we were taught carefully by primary Sunday school and priesthood teachers. I particularly remember a primary teacher reading a story to us from the Improvement Era. I had the historical department find it for me, and I found that that story was worth repeating. The story was taken from the October 1929 Improvement Era. It is about Creed Heyman, a young Mormon who applied and was accepted at the University of Pennsylvania. He was an athlete known for his speed, and because of the way he acted and participated, he was chosen to be the captain of the team. 
the annual meeting of the Intercollegiate Association of Amateur Athletes of America was held at Harvard Stadium at the end of May of 1919. To Cambridge came the greatest college athletes, 1,700 in all. In the tryouts, Penn had qualified 17 men. Carnell, their most feared rival that year, had only qualified 10. The Penn team was in position to be crowned the champions. The scores were made on the first five places, five for first, four for second, three for third, two for fourth, and one for fifth. Naturally, the team that qualified the most men had the greatest opportunity to win the meet. The Penn coach was in high spirits the night before the meet. He made the rounds of his team members before he retired. He came into Creed's room and said, Creed, if we do our best tomorrow, we'll run away with it. And the coach hesitated. Creed, I'm having the boys take a little sherry wine tonight. I want you to have some. Just a little, of course. I won't do it, coach. But Creed, I'm not going to get you drunk. I know what you Mormons believe. I, I'm giving you this just as a little tonic that you'll all be put on your medal. It won't do me any good, coach. I can't take it. The coach replied, Remember, Creed, you're the captain of the team, our best point winner. 14,000 students are looking to you personally to win this meet. If you fail us, we'll lose. I ought to know what's good for you. Creed knew that other coaches felt that a little wine was useful for the men to have trained muscles and nerves that were almost to the snapping point. He knew also that what the coach was asking of him was against all he had been taught from his early childhood. He looked his coach in the eye and said, I won't take it. The coach replied, You're a funny fellow, Creed. You won't take tea at the training table. You have ideas of your own. Well, I'm not going to let you. Well, I'm going to let you do as you please. The coach then left the captain of the team in a state of extreme anxiety. Suppose he made a worse showing tomorrow. What could he say to his coach? He was going up against the fastest men in the world. Nothing less than his best would do. His stubbornness might lose the meat for Penn. His teammates were told what to do, and they had responded. They believed in their coach. What right did he have to disobey? There was only one reason. He had been taught all his life to obey the word of wisdom. It was a critical hour in this young man's life. With all of the spiritual force of his nature pressing in on him, he knelt down and earnestly asked the Lord to give him a testimony as to what was the source of this revelation that he had believed in and obeyed. Then he went to his bed and slept in sound slumber. The next morning the coach came into his room and asked, How are you feeling, Creed? Fine, the captain answered cheerfully. All of the other fellows are ill. I don't know what's the matter with them, the coach said seriously. Maybe it's the tonic you gave them, coach. Maybe so, answered the coach. Two o'clock found 20,000 spectators in their seats, waiting for the meet to begin. As the events got underway, it was plain that something was wrong with the wonderful Penn team. Event after event, the 
Penn team performed well below what was expected of them. Some members were even too ill to participate. The 100 and the 220-yard dash were Creed's races. The Penn team desperately needed him to win for them. He was up against the five fastest men in the American colleges. As the men took their marks for the 100-yard dash, the pistol was shot, and every man sprang forward into the air and touched the earth at a run. That is all except one, Creed Heyman. Using the second lane in the trials, the one that had run before Creed in this particular event, had kicked a hole for his toe an inch or two behind the spot that Heyman had chosen for his. They didn't use starting blocks in those days. With a tremendous thrust that Creed gave, the narrow wedge of earth broke through and he came down on his knees behind the line. He got up and tried to make up for the poor start. At 60 yards, he was last in the race. Then he seemed to fly past the fifth man, then the fourth, then the third, then the second. Close to the tape, heart bursting with strain, he swept into that climax and whirlwind swiftness and ran fast past the final man to victory. Through some mistaken arrangements, the semifinals for the 220 were not completed till almost the close of the meet. With the same bad breaks that had followed the Penn team all day, Creed Heyman had been placed in the last qualifying heat for the 220-yard dash. Then five minutes after winning, he was called upon to start the final 220, the last event of the day. One of the other men who had run early, an earlier heat rushed up to him. Tell the starter you demand a rest before running again. You're entitled to it under the rules. I've hardly caught my breath yet and I ran in the heat before yours. Creed went panning to the starter and begged for more time. The official said he would give him ten minutes, but the crowd was clamoring and he, the five, for the final race to begin. Regretfully, he called the men to their marks. Under ordinary conditions, Creed would not have feared this race. He was probably the fastest man in the world at that distance, but yet he had already run three races that afternoon one heart-stopping hundred-yard dash. The starter ordered the breathless men to their marks, raised his pistol, and with a puff of smoke, the race began. This time, the pen captain literally shot from his marks. Soon Creed emerged from the crowd and took the lead. He sprinted all the way up the field, and with a burst of speed, eight yards ahead of the nearest man, he broke the tape, winning the second race, the 200-yard dash. Penn had lost the meet, but their captain had astounded the fans with his excellent runs. At the end of that strange day, as Creed Heyman was going to bed, there suddenly came to his memory his question of the night before regarding the divinity of the word of wisdom. The procession of that peculiar ser series of events then passed before his mind. His teammates had taken wine and had failed. His abstinence had brought victory that even amazed himself. The sweet, simple assurance of the Spirit came to him. The word of wisdom is of God. I wonder in this age if it's enough to just have the courage to say no, or do we have a further responsibility to be of service to others in helping them overcome the great curse that's now plaguing our society? 
There was one time in my life that I wished that I exerted a little more influence in preventing a friend from partaking of a harmful substance. We were on a scout outing in Yellowstone. One late evening, we went over to see Old Faithful erupt. Walking back to our tents, my friend stopped me in a dark, secluded spot and took out a can of beer. I don't know where he managed to get it. He said, I have a treat for us. Then he offered to share the can of beer with me. Of course, my home training and teachings of great leaders in the auxiliaries and priesthood had taught me that this was no temptation for me, that I was not to accept his offer. He drank the whole can, and I made no effort to dissuade or stop him. It had a harmful effect on our friendship. I really don't know why. Maybe it was because I had a sense of guilt for not being more aggressive and preventing him from partaking of the beverage. And maybe on his part, he was afraid that I would reveal what occurred in a way that it would get back to his parents. Over the years, I've been saddened by the loss of that friendship. Today, the curse of drink and drugs is becoming a national nightmare. It is the cause of most of our crime, accidents, loss of employment, and the breakup of our homes. You great young men of the Aaronic Priesthood will be required to pay the social costs for this dreaded disease as you move forward into your adult lives. Surely something must be done to stop this destructive force. I challenge you to stand up to your peers as an example of righteous living. I know the Lord will fulfill His promise to you by blessing you with health with knowledge, with wisdom, that will set you apart from the rest of the world. Your righteous example will also bless the lives of many, many others. God bless you that you will have the courage to live the way you should and be an example of one living the great gospel principles. We hold so dear is my humble prayer. In the name of our Lord and Savior, even Jesus Christ, amen.